the paternal function is one of the most embedded concepts, both in the singular dimension of clinical thinking and in the extended of social functioning. It underlies, for example, one of the fundamental elements of the psychoanalytic method. The very idea of analytic setting could not exist without a paternal function. In today's episode, thanks to the work of Michael J. Diamond, we will explore its many aspects, including the construction of triangular space, the role of the third in the internal functioning of the subject, and the question of limits. We will also delve into more specific characteristics, such as the tenderness and sensory intimacy between a little boy and his father. We might say that this podcast episode is like a child of Michael J. Diamond's recent book, published by Routledge, and entitled Masculinity and Its Discontents, in which he studies, as the subtitle says, the male psyche and the inherent tensions of maturing manhood. Michael J. Diamond, PhD, is an IPA training and supervising analyst at the Los Angeles Institute and Society for Psychoanalytic Studies. His major publications are on psychoanalytic technique and analytic mindedness, masculinity and femininity and gender theory, fathering and the paternal function, trauma and dissociation, hypnosis and altered states, and group processes and social action. He has written five books, including today's featured book on masculinity and its discontents. His most recent book on applied psychoanalysis, Raptures in the American Psyche, containing destructive populism in perilous times, was just published by Phoenix Publishing. His other major books include My Father Before Me, How Fathers and Son Influence Each Other Throughout Their Lives, and an edited book on The Second Century of Psychoanalysis, Evolving Perspectives on Therapeutic Action, with Chris Christian. He is an honored recipient of numerous awards for teaching, writing and clinical contributions and has a full-time clinical practice in Los Angeles, California, where he remains active in teaching, supervising and writing. I am Gaetano Pellegrini with Talks on Psychoanalysis, the IPA podcast devoted to topics published in the IPA Society journals and Congress debates worldwide featuring the original voices of the authors. This podcast series, published by the International Psychoanalytical Association, is part of the activities of the IPA Communication Committee and is produced by the IPA podcast editorial team. Editing and post-production Massimiliano Guerrieri. Please check the details of the episode to find selected recommended reading for this episode and the link to download the paper. And to stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. Emerging from my book that addresses the inherent tensions of the male psyche, this podcast focuses on the boy's earliest relationship with his father, as well as the father's importance in the development of masculinity, particularly with regard to aspects of tenderness and sensory intimacy, as well as to what is often considered feminine. 
While the fundamental tensions in navigating gender will remain, radical and widespread changes in sociocultural practices are evident. And we can predict these variations will enlarge our understanding in the years ahead. I concentrate on three main ways that the father impacts a male's sense of masculinity. First, as an actual flesh and blood presence. Second, as an internal intrapsychic representation, or imago. And finally, as the third in the mind's triadic Oedipal structure. I'll begin with the role played by the actual flesh and blood father. The little boy's pre-Oedipal dyadic father-son homoerotic love, his typically masculine special interest in the father, has nothing to do with a passive or feminine attitude towards fathers and to males in general. Still, comparable to the boy's heteroerotic desires for his mother, unconscious incestuous anxieties are generated, which serve to accelerate the repudiation of his homoerotic, sensual, and tender love for the father. Hence, in combination with cultural mores, the boy's same-sex object desire often tends to be preemptively foreclosed. In my revising disidentification theory, which had posited that healthy masculinity can only be won by repudiating the feminine, I propose that the pre-Oedipal dyadic father is crucial in regulating the severity of his son's traumatic separation from his mother and, accordingly, his relationship with femininity. As I will discuss, however, even if fathers are physically or emotionally unavailable, they are always psychically present and thereby able to represent the symbolic paternal function. The actual father's importance partially stems from the drive to individuate and the incest taboo. Combined with culturally enforced aspects of separation from the maternal orbit, the young boy often experiences his need for an identification with his mother as shameful while also likely disavowing or foreclosing his active, albeit receptive, typically masculine desire for his father. This is evident in adult males' defensive efforts against neediness to stave off shame states that are occasioned by penetration anxieties, often in receptive, passive, and or sexualized countenance, that are equated with shameful femininity. Consequently, many men create impenetrable citadels erected to fend off their essential incompleteness as originally grounded in the infant boy's complex relationship to his mother. In prevented being seen as vulnerable and lacking, shame often underlies melancholic states of loss associated with highly conflictual maternal longing and disavowed homoerotic love. We see this, for instance, when males join together in unacknowledged loving groups, typically heterosexual ones, often sharing their internalized homophobia by repudiating the feminine. Turning to the challenges in becoming an involved father, I note that fatherhood further establishes a male's sense of adult masculinity, replete with cultural and social expectations that tend to become salient. The process of fathering often triggers tremendous inner turmoil that for some men will interfere with truly becoming a father as more regressive, phallic-dominated defensive actions and retreats take hold. 
For example, men who are dominated by narcissistically based forms of masculine striving, when initially called upon to father, may become depressed, or more frequently they may act out by having affairs, abandoning the family, losing themselves in work or substance abuse, and generally becoming unavailable as protectors in a sort of paternal version of postpartum depression. Typically, and tragically, such failed fathering is compounded by the male's deepening sense of shame and guilt surrounding his arrested sense of manhood when unable to embrace the fathering function. An important challenge for the new father in coming to terms with his evolving, more mature, so-called genital, less phallic form of masculinity is to see his manhood as incorporating both the ability to stand alone and an increased capacity to connect by allowing the individuality of others to exist and thrive. This is evident, for example, in the statement of a former star athlete who described his experience of watching his wife with their child. He said, I watched them playing with each other and I knew that I would destroy something they were sharing if I made my presence known. It was difficult to just watch. I wanted to get in there and do something, maybe tickle or toss my kid up in the air. I resisted the temptation though and I'm glad. That evening I noticed I felt older and heavier, not so light and spry, but you know, I felt more like a man that night than I ever have, even before when I played football. The more instinctual base, basis of fathering is less recognized, perhaps because of the prevailing belief that fathers are further removed from parenting's instinctual roots than our mothers. Nonetheless, there is an instinctually rooted character trait termed genuine fatherliness, which enables a father to act toward his children with immediate empathic responsiveness. Moreover, the process of becoming a father, his actual attachment and relationship to his infant, namely the precursors to a generative, nurturing fatherliness, begins long before conception, preceding labor and delivery as well. Just as the roots of a woman's motherhood are traceable to the distant past and the little girl's wishes to be like her mother, so too can the foundations of a father's attachment and relationship to his infant be discerned in the little boy's procreative and defensive instincts, wishes, and behaviors linked to his own earliest relationships, both to his mother and his father. Fathering invariably provides an occasion to move towards new and more satisfying resolution of sex and gender conflicts. When engaging in actual fathering, a man is given the opportunity to develop a more mature gender identity by renouncing and mourning his phallic wish to be unlimited in order to recognize and instead accept certain real limitations vis-a-vis -vis sex and gender, as well as generational differences. The emerging father must deal with and adequately master a number of emotional and psychological issues to achieve the paternal caregiving role. For instance, unconscious conflicts may be triggered for a man while his wife is pregnant. There may be envy of the prospective mother, concerns regarding responsibility for impregnation, anxieties about adulthood and aging, issues with competition, and wishes to establish or reestablish connection with one's own father or revitalize one's own parents, as well as jealousy and guilt toward the fetus who is the object of the mother's rapt attention. Given sufficient spousal and social support, 
the latter often through analytic treatment itself, most men are able to weather these difficulties sufficiently to preserve their fatherly instincts. Accordingly, the father's watchful holding of the mother-baby dyad can constructively serve to protect him from his destructive envy and to compensate him for feeling unimportant and left out of the dyad. This provides him with a sense of narcissistic fulfillment along more neutralized phallic lines as proof of his masculine life-giving potency. The actual father, or surrogate, is called upon to fulfill three essential fathering functions, each of which impacts masculinity and will remain important throughout the lives of both the father and child. First, as I've noted, to serve as the watchfully protective father, and then to become both the attracting and separating father. Let's consider each, beginning with the watchfully protective father. The archaic and universal wish to be tended to, protected, and provided for is experienced in both imaginary and actual relationships with others throughout the lifespan. The Christian paternal imagery in Matthew of our Father which art in heaven is the foremost Western depiction of this, in which the preeminent representation of the protector and provider role is that of the Father. Freud stressed the gravity of such paternal protectiveness when he stated, I cannot think of any need in childhood as strong as the need for a father's protection. This early provision is quite pressing, and there is evidence that children of fathers less involved in these initial phases are more likely to incur the detrimental effects of absent or ineffective fathering, including father hunger as well as the more rigidly defensive organization of gender experience. This protective fathering function remains important throughout his child's development, though its forms will alter and its significance will recede as other fatherly provisions become more salient. In short, the aptitude for paternal watchfulness represents a more developed form of masculinity that synthesizes autonomy and connection the selfless generosity, sacrifice, and servitude required serve as an important life step, among other developmental passages, that indicate the mature male's, mat- excuse me, the maturing male's mastery and integration of phallic urges into their more aim-inhibited forms. Succeeding as a good enough, watchfully protective father partly depends on the degree to which a man can appropriately deal with his envy of the intense mother-infant mutuality. An initial jealousy of this bond is natural after all, but the protectively holding father must successfully integrate both the creative and destructive aspects of his envy, often through his identification with the blissful union experienced by mother and baby. Of course, the mother's sensitivity to the father's needs and feelings of loss can help ameliorate his sense of exclusion and rivalry. Though mostly unconscious when called upon to watchfully protect his progeny, the male's unique developmental dilemma of how he is to become a man while maintaining a close connection with his own mother is recreated. Like the growing boy who learns to join his needs for autonomy with his needs for connection, the father who becomes engrossed in his newborn while holding the mother-infant dyad is able to simultaneously experience what Chassagay Schmergel called a loving union with the world while acknowledging the fact of its otherness. 
shielding the mother from impingement from without while serving as an external beacon to his wife and child. He protects their intense mutuality by freeing the mother to devote herself to the baby in what Winnicott terms her primary maternal preoccupation. Men who are able to watch over, hold, and protect the mother and the developing fetus, infant, and small child are more likely to become fathers who must again hold, bear, and support with interested restraint his adolescent child's identity experimentation and subsequent distancing from family dependencies. Through functioning in this way, typically in conjunction with a sufficiently attuned mother able to recognize her son's masculinity, the severity of what might be potentially traumatizing for the little boy engaged in the separation individuation process is mitigated. Turning both to the attracting and the separating father functions, I want to say that the actual father serves as the earliest representation of the non-mother world. As the functional agent of separation, fathers represent difference and invariably carry the paternal quality as third. This may occur even in circumstances when the second parent is neither the biological father nor even male. Regardless, these fundamental qualities of fathering, nurturing, protecting, and holding, as well as subsequently attracting and separating the son from the mother's world, reflect and require a more flexible sense of masculinity that facilitates consolidating the boy's integration of his maternal feminine identifications. This becomes clearer when turning to the father as an internal representation or imago, mostly as the so-called symbolic father. In short, fathers or the surrogates establish triangular space through inhabiting both the attracting and separating facets of the paternal function. The ability to internalize a healthy father imago partly depends on the nature of the father's relationship with the mother and hers with the father. This internalization typically requires a real flesh-and-blood other through inhabiting the attracting father function that offers his child and spouse a dyadic relationship with him that is both parallel to and competes with the mother-son unit. Coupled parents, regardless of gender, jointly regarding their child are more oriented towards the psyche's essential thirdness and become more likely to promote self-representations in triadic relationship that sets the course for a more favorable edible phase and healthy gender identity development. Ideally, the father helps his son recognize the link joining his parents together and thereby establishes triangular space. By being both a caring father to his son and an exciting lover to his partner, he offers each a dyadic relationship with him as a vital anchor that is parallel to and competes with the mother-son dyad. Accordingly, the boy is better able to represent himself with his mother, his father, and with mother and father together. In contrast, when unable to couple with his wife to facilitate the internalization of triadic reality, the boy's identification with his mother becomes problematic and tends to negatively affect his masculine gender identity. This is evident in some boys' more hysterical and perverse reactions to the prospect of separating from the mother, disavowing his own and his mother's sexuality. They unconsciously remain in the position of the little boy with his pre-sexual mother. Though my focus is primarily on traditional heterosexual coupling, 
Triadic parenting issues also pertain to homosexual couples in addition to single parents for whom the third is delegated to a surrogate as the agent of the symbolic function and in which the second other, the third, is called upon to draw the primary nurturer back into the sexual liaison. Both partners' identifications with their own feminine and masculine caregivers play a significant role, as evident in the father's presence in the mother's mind, and vice versa. Moreover, the second other is equally important to the development of both the gay and the straight boy's relationship to his masculinity, namely his sense of maleness in being gay, bisexual, or straight. I might note here the unique yet overlapping developmental trajectories of homosexual and heterosexual boys, although the pathways along which the homosexual, bisexual, as well as trans child begins to experience homoerotic attraction are more complicated, usually requiring the father's affirmation of his son's masculine identity as an outsider. Returning to the involved father's impact on the son's gender identity, as the little boy turns away from his mother and experiences loss, as I've noted, an available pre-edible father tempers the son's defensive tendency to disengage forcefully from her. The boy, who is able to achieve a reciprocal identification with an available, loving, and attracting father, who possesses a body and genitalia like his own, who is like the boy, but who remains independent and outside the boy's control, is provided with a foundation for a more secure and often more varied gendered expression of the self. This affirming mutual bond with the father, or surrogate, facilitates the son's integration of maternal feminine identifications, as well as helping him overcome what Nancy Chodorov referred to as the fault lines of being easily humiliated in relation to other males. Unfortunately, however, many fathers struggle to inhabit the paternal function, even as his son turns towards the world of the father. This difficulty frequently arises around age three, when the boy begins to experience his mother in a sexual manner, in addition to her accustomed role as maternal nurturer. Pre-edible splitting occurs, and the boy feels he has two mothers, two selves, one that is pregenital, one that is genital. Conflict emerges as to which mother he desires, the evocative sexual one or the comforting nurturer, and temporary refuge from this conflict is sought by putting the conflict outside the mother-child relation, setting up the father as the second other who is to blame. The father then, in his symbolic countenance, is blamed for breaking the bliss of ignorance and turning it into the sin of sexual knowledge. He's then consequently called upon to accept this potentially adaptive projection and to bear his child's hatred towards the outside the mother world that he represents. This entails metabolizing the projection through assuming a sufficient paternal function in which his containing and involved, attracting as well as separating genital presence helps the boy keep his mind linked both to mother and to father. Lacking this containment, however, an opposition can form in the son's mind between love and sexuality that is often the precursor to the Madonna whore complex. In contrast, the father whom the boy admires and who interacts with and mentors him in a caring rather than shaming way through bearing such projections facilitates internalizing a paternal imago in which the active and penetrating aspects and the receptive and caregiving giving qualities of paternal parenting 
become a foundation for healthy and fluid masculine gender identity. This fathering imago reflects both the attracting and separating facets of healthy paternal functioning, namely genital fathering in which adaptive phallic strivings are integrated with more relationally oriented connecting and nurturing masculine qualities. This helps set the stage for a healthy sense of maleness in which in which masculinity no longer requires rigid defending by warding off either the fearfully feminine or the terrifying shame of being humiliated by other boys and later men. It is apparent then that the nurturing and protective qualities of this earliest father contradict the more universal phallic gender stereotype of men as primarily active, penetrating, and potent. These fundamental fathering qualities reflect a more flexible sense of masculinity and thus can facilitate the integration of the boy's maternal feminine identifications through the internalization of a relationship with an admired man who interacts in ways other than a phallic manner. Because the more receptive and serene paternal functions involving holding, containing, waiting, and empathy have long been ignored, presupposed as maternal or feminine traits, or simply treated as insignificant and peripheral, yielding to these faculties can provide an opportunity to challenge the need to repudiate putative femininity, especially for men more organized around phallic masculinity. To reiterate, the symbolic father function cuts the symbiotic regressive tie to the archaic mother and thereby encourages separateness by promoting a shifting from an imaginary relationship with the mother. This symbolic father is understood to be quite distinct from the father as a real embodied person. And as Lacan theorizes, the symbolic order becomes primary through the name of the father. Standing in the way of primal fusion through language, then, it aids in differentiating from the mother's body. The symbolic father blocks the child from an imaginary world of omnipotent fantasy. Nonetheless, the symbolic order is rendered primary through the actual father's exercise of his separating function, evident in the father's statement of no Represented as the third element that breaks apart the collusion between mother and child, the symbolic father separates the two by laying down the incest taboo, serving as a sort of symbolic castration that opens up three-dimensional space wherein thought replaces action, all of which requires inhibition, loss, limits, lack, and mourning. Post-Lacanian Francophones, particularly André Green, Joyce McDougall, and Jean Laplanche, advance this understanding by focusing on the father's essential presence as the third in the mother's mind that precludes entrapment in a dual relationship. Maturing masculinity then emerges from this third element that includes the subject, object, and other object in the mother's mind particularly when augmented by the actual father's role as an agent of separation, decreeing prohibitions, and offering himself as an object for identification. In some, then, the paternal function remains a centerpiece of classical and contemporary theory and is understood to reflect a complex interaction between the father's actual presence, symbolic functioning, and internal representation in both the child's mind and the mother's. In conclusion, 
fathers then inhabit numerous positions, from castrators and separators to protectors, seducers, attractors, and affirmers. As noted, the boy's turning toward his father as an alternative libidinal object to be internalized serves as a differentiating factor, a fortress that keeps the mother out, to which I would add an opening that lets the world in. The presence of the father as a symbolic and an actual attracting, devoted, and attentive third helps the boy optimally attach, differentiate, and separate in a manner that facilitates internalizing key aspects of his relationship with the mother. The boy's early identifications with, as well as by his mother and father, forever remain psychically significant, while playing a vital role in his sense of maleness. Finally, as he matures, these internalizations typically become more accessible and thus subject to mutative influences, often through the analytic process itself. Thank you.